0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. You
1: know as well as I that we have Roundup facing us next week. And you talk to me about windmills. Yes, windmills. And you know as well as I that it'll take a miracle to get the water up on that north section. And Fairbanks Windmill might be it. Fairbanks Windmill. All this man has is a theory. We know nothing about him or his reputation. Now you can't leave a shorthanded just to go to talk to a man who's probably a, a crackpot. Crackpot? Yes, Crackpot. A long time ago, a man fooled around with a thing he called a cotton gin. His name was Whitney, and they called him a crackpot, too. And they said the same thing about a man called what? Until his steam engine made history. And before that, there was a man who thought the world was round. You missed one. Who? In between those last two gentlemen you mentioned, there was another man who rode around looking for windmills, and his name was Don Quixote, and he was a crackpot. You and your education... Education is progress. Now, what have you got against it? I don't have anything against education, as long as it doesn't interfere with your thinking.
2: Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 28, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Into colour, colour into black and white. Under the everything will be alright. Well, it's that time of year again in Ontario when the province's education system is being threatened by strike action, currently taking the form of what the union has called a work-to-rule action that began on November 26th. And while I'd love to spend some time pontificating about the evils of teachers' unions and how they constantly use students and parents as pawns in their negotiating tactics, that's the least of our problems when it comes to the education system, not only in Ontario, but right across the continent. So before I begin to pontificate about the real problem with education today, don't forget that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justwritemedia.org where you can access all of Just Write's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and by so doing become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. I cannot possibly count the number of times I've been engaged with people about the various social and political issues confronting us today, in which the conversation inevitably ends up at some version of, it all boils down to the education system, and what's being taught in the schools. I don't have anything against education, says Ben Cartwright to his son Adam in today's show opener, from the TV series Bonanza, as long as it doesn't interfere with your thinking. And therein lies the real problem with education today. Most of it does interfere with the student's ability to think, and worse, it has intentionally been designed to do so. And as to Adam Cartwright's assertion that education is progress, now what have you got against it? I myself would answer, yes, a real education would be progress, but a progressive education is the exact opposite. And that's what we have in North America today, and have had throughout my entire lifetime, and longer. And just as with the term progressive conservative, the term progressive, when combined with education, means socialist, collectivist, anti-individualism. Of all the disciplines that can be taught, the most fundamental and critical is the teaching of reading and writing. Literacy. Because once you've mastered literacy, you can master all of knowledge. Yet with all the billions spent on public education, why is it that we keep reading and hearing about ever-increasing illiteracy rates? And this is a question and an issue that is certainly nothing new to me. It has been a major concern ever since I got involved in public advocacy and in politics in general. And because the answers and solutions to solving the illiteracy crisis are so simple and clear, why is it that this fundamental education problem just keeps getting worse and not better? Well, some might say it's because the government runs the schools and severely restricts freedom of choice in education, even though private education options are out there. And this certainly is a factor, but not a root cause, because many of the private schools similarly teach from the same education Bible. Others might argue that it's the union's, who are also a factor, but again not a fundamental cause of illiteracy. And of course there's government bureaucracy, and the high cost of an education system run on the forced funding of taxation. And yes, all of these are factors, but not a fundamental cause of illiteracy. So if all of these factors cited are not the fundamental cause, then what is? Well, in a word, it comes down to epistemology the very science and discipline of knowledge itself. And that's the process that we intend to address and answer on today's show. And we shall begin by investigating the cause and the history and the extent of the problem with, on this side of our upcoming bumper, a presentation made by Dr. Leonard Peikoff at the Ford Hall Forum in Boston way back in 1984, in which we'll hear much more from later in today's show. While on the return side of our bumper, we'll be hearing from Bill Whittle, who on his March 13th YouTube presentation, had a number of his own questions to ask on the persistent phenomenon of the growing rate of illiteracy in schools right across North America.
0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The best indicator of our government tomorrow is our schools today. Are our youngsters being brought up to be free, independent, thinking men and women, or are they being turned into helpless, mindless pawns who will run into the arms of the first dictator that sounds plausible? To prepare for this evening's talk, I did some first-hand research. I spent two weeks in February visiting schools in New York City, both public and private, from kindergarten through teacher's college. I deliberately chose schools with good reputations, some of which are the shining models for the rest of the country, and I happily let the principals guide me to their top teachers. I wanted to see the system not when it was just scraping by, starved for money and full of compromises, but at its best, when it was adequately funded, competently staffed, and proud of its activities. I got an eyeful. My experience at one school, a famous progressive institution, will serve to introduce my impression of the whole system. I had indicated that I was interested in how children are taught concepts, and the school obligingly directed me to three classes. The first, for nine and ten year olds, was a class discussion of 13 steps in seal hunting, from cutting the hole in the ice at the start to sharing the blubber with others at the end. The teacher gave no indication of the purpose of this topic, but he did indicate that the class would later perform a play on seal hunting and perhaps even computerize the steps. This was not a school for Eskimos, by the way. (laughs) The next class for 13-year-olds consisted of a mock Washington hearing on the question of whether there should be a tax on imported Japanese cars. Students played senators, Japanese lobbyists, Lee Iacocca and so on, and did it quite well. The teacher sat silently observing. I never learned the name of this course or of the seal hunting one. But finally I was to observe a meeting described to me as a class in English. At last I thought an academic subject. But no, the book being covered was Robert Kennedy's 13 Days a memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. And a typical topic for discussion was whether a surgical airstrike against Cuba would have been better policy than a blockade. The school undoubtedly would defend these classes as exercises in ethnicity or democracy or relevance. But whatever the defense, the fact is that all these classes were utterly concrete-bound. Seal hunting was not used to illustrate the rigors of northern life or the method of analyzing a skill into steps or anything at all. The issue of taxing Japanese cars was not related to a study of free trade versus protectionism or of the proper function of government or of the principles of foreign policy or of any principles. The same goes with the Cuban discussion. In all cases, a narrow concrete was taught, enacted, discussed, argued over in and of itself. In other words, as a concrete without connection to anything wider. This is the essence of the approach that, in a variety of forms, is destroying all of our schools. The anti-conceptual approach.
3: Today we have a horrible true story, a gruesome tale of mad scientists experimenting on living human brains, burning out entire sections of the mind to create an army of slaves built exclusively to do their bidding. This is a story about those experiments and the millions of innocent children whose lives were crippled by them. So let's start with some video, and I warn you, for those of you who are parents, this is going to be particularly hard to watch.
2: What are the first words of the U.S. Constitution? (laughs) Constitution?
1: Like I know this, but not right now. <laughs> um, of the people for the people.
2: Something about equal. Cool. So if I'm going 30 miles per hour, how long does it take me
0: to go 30 miles?
1: Six depends. This is a what? math question. It is a math. TV? question. TV? No, I don't like math if questions. If you're going 30 miles no. per hour, how so long does it take you to go 30 miles? Yeah.
0: Uh, well, if you're going 60, it just takes you 30 minutes. So I don't
1: know.
2: <laughs> what galaxy do we live in? yo
0: what? earth how many planets are in our solar system
1: a lot there is no planets in our solar system right what is 5% out of a hundred
0: 20 no it's not it's 20 20 20 40 60 80 100 5% is 20 no no I don't think that's right
1: what causes
2: tides I have no idea like what do you mean tides like water tides I don't know the environment. Wind, I don't, wait, currents, I don't know. Who won the civil war? I don't know.
0: Are you an American? Yeah. Okay. Who won the civil war? I don't know. <laughs>
1: um, I don't know that question. Who won the civil war? <laughs> Come on. Pop, We're not gonna do this right now. Some of those questions, they don't, they're irrelevant, so. That doesn't mean I'm not
2: smart. Look,
3: there are hundreds of these videos asking the most simple questions of college-aged young people, and thousands and thousands of blank looks and embarrassed laughter takes. But when you confront millennials about how little they know, you always get the same answer you get it every time. If we need to know the answer, they'll say, we'll just Google it." And you know, that's true, because it's the sum total right here of human knowledge, all of the answers to everything right here. This has been the dream of humans since humans became human and here it is. Answers to everything. Now the problem with Millennials is not that they don't know any answers. The problem is they don't know what questions to ask. Mark Twain said that the man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. Millennials don't know basic answers to the simplest questions because Millennials can't read. They can't read. Yes, of course, they can decode English sentences, but that's not reading. Reading requires focus and concentration, hours and hours and hours of it. Young Americans are physically incapable of this. It's beyond their mental ability, not their ability to understand it, but it's beyond their ability to undertake it. Now, Why Johnny Can't Read was an earth-shaking book published in 1955, that's four years before I was published. It was written by Rudolf Flesch, who discovered that American school kids, this is in 1955, remember, had suddenly experienced a dramatic drop in their reading comprehension scores. That's because the grandfathers of today's evil brain surgeons changed the way that kids were taught to read. They had a trendy new theory called look-say. Here's a word, here's what that word means, Now go out there into the world and brute force memorize every single word you can by linking the word to the picture of the word. The first generation of liberal educators were basically forcing American kids to memorize hieroglyphics. And reading scores and attention spans and all the rest started to fall through the floor. So this very chic theory, looks a very popular in teacher staff rooms, destroyed the entire basis of language and that basis is that letters represent sounds. If you'd been taught look say, and you came upon a word you'd never seen before, you'd have no way to understand how it sounded. So, I went looking for a word that I'd never seen before, and here's what I came up with. Anfractuous. Turns out, "anfractuous" means something that is winding or circuitous. I could immediately pronounce a word I'd never seen before because I knew what sounds the letters made, and this is called phonics. Teachers ditched phonics because phonics was old fashioned and phonics was old-fashioned because phonics works. If I would learned to read through look say, and fractious would be as impenetrable as this word is. I can't make any sense out of this because it's written in Cyrillic with many completely new letters and completely different sounds. But if I translate that same Russian word not into English but just into the Latin alphabet that we use in English to make specific sounds, we get this word. Lit, liter, liter, liter- literatura, 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 literatura. literatura. It turns out that Russian and English share many common roots and the Russian word literatura sounds a lot like the English word literature and that's exactly what the word means. Now, I could have just Googled the Russian word for literature, and as a matter of fact, that's exactly what I did. So, millennials can get that far, but in order to explain why today's college kids are so shockingly ignorant, I had to show how left-wing professors had used them in their experiments on the human brain. To do that, I had to know about a book called Why Johnny Can't Read. I had to know what the word hieroglyphics means. I had to think through the process of demonstrating the catastrophic effects of look-say, which along with new math and the self-esteem movement, were heartless and cruel experiments on the living brains of human children. Yes, Millennials can easily Google the Russian word for literature but they can't Google the information matrix necessary to realize a problem, analyze that problem, construct an illustration to clarify the problem, and then bring all of that together in order to make a point to try and solve the problem and that point is simply this. Millennials did not ask for helicopter parents. They didn't ask to become laboratory specimens on which progressives could experiment, and they certainly didn't ask for an education system that kept depriving them year after year after year of the greatest gift that teachers and parents can bestow upon their children, and that is the gift of failure. Please, have a seat, Mrs. Wells.
1: Thank you. You know, I honestly think this will all blow over if we just wait a week or so.
0: I'm afraid we can't do that.
1: Why not?
3: They're suing. For what? Emotional distress to a minor. Mrs. Wells, can you please tell the members of this board exactly when you became aware of this fiasco and the events leading up to the riot?
1: Riot? I just told a student that two plus two equals four.
0: (laughs) We uh, need for you to recant that. What? Just say that you're open to the possibility. There might be multiple correct answers.
1: But that's not true. We can't let them bully us. This is so stupid. Stupid. That's your problem.
3: Anyone who disagrees with you is stupid.
1: There is nothing to disagree with. There is only one correct
3: answer. For your sake, I certainly hope you have that correct answer when the media gets wind of this. I do. It's four. I have my own
1: answer. This school minus you equals tomorrow. You're firing me? Suspending while you reconsider your
0: extremist views. You brought this on yourself.
3: What's being called Mathgate, an activist elementary school teacher was caught abusing her students' First Amendment rights.
1: It's an interesting story.
3: Okay, so this teacher, this liberal elitist,
0: tells this innocent little first grade kid that his answer is wrong.
1: Only her answer is acceptable. Yeah, from what I hear, she doesn't even keep these students for more than a year. After that, they all leave her and go to another teacher. It's called graduating. So it's creating some good, healthy debate in this country. Some experts say that
3: two plus two equals four. Others say that it's 22.
1: No, they don't!
3: Look, if you hate America that much, why don't you just go teach in commie France?
1: Hello. Hello,
3: Mrs. Wells. The board decided that for everyone's benefit, your services will no longer be required.
1: For everyone's benefit? How about the kids? Uh, I need radicalizing our students
3: anymore. Now it was the boomers and the Gen Xers, not the millennials, who tried to put lifeguards and chain link fences around every single body of water in the country, when what they should have been doing was teaching them how to swim. Johnny can't think, because he was never taught how to think, and of all the questions I would Google if I were a millennial, the first question I would ask is, why?
2: Well, that's a question we'll certainly be tackling today. By the way, for those who aren't sure themselves, the answers to the questions asked of the students are as follows. First words of the U.S. Constitution, we the people. How long does it take to go 30 miles at 30 miles an hour? Well, one hour. Amazingly, the girl answering that question said at 60 miles per hour it would take half an hour, wasn't able to take what she already knew and apply it to an even simpler question. The answer was, in fact, in the question. What galaxy do we live in? Well, that's the Milky Way. How many planets in our solar system? Eight, if you don't count Pluto. Nine, if you do, as I continue to do, despite its recent decommissioning as a planet. We did a whole show on that years ago. What is 5% of 100? Well, five, of course. The girl who answered 20 obviously confused 5% with 1 over 5. One-fifth, when she recited 20, 40, 60, 80, 100. What causes tides? The shifting gravitational forces between the Earth and the Moon. Who won the Civil War? The North. And why can't Johnny read? Well, that's what the rest of our show is all about today. Look, say, is just one of the many names given to the socialist teaching ideology designed and calculated to cripple an individual's ability to think and reason. And I'm serious about this. I'm not just saying this to be critical about something I disagree with. Back in the day when Robert Vaughn and I campaigned heavily against this evil form of teaching, it was called whole language and we created quite a controversy back in 1992 after the Freedom Party of Ontario distributed its Just Say No to Whole Language pamphlet throughout various neighbourhoods in London as well as in Ottawa, Toronto and Sarnia.
3: At issue was so-called whole language instruction and many of the speakers expressed frustration that their children aren't learning the skills they need. To be quite frank, the parent still does not know what this says and the child could not read it back to the parent. Concerns over that kind of spelling and worries about reading skills resulted in a packed gallery for the meeting of the Board's Program Standing Committee. Not all were opposed to whole language, but most expressed real concerns about the child-centered approach and the long-term effects it could have on the children involved in it. An inadequate education is not something that can be returned for a repair or refund like a faulty appliance. We are talking about our children's lives and the future of our children and
1: society. Everyone in this room will probably agree that whole language has been the most poorly communicated program to come around in a long, long time.
2: And I think if there's any message here tonight that I'd like to bring to, to everyone is let's have some choice in education. About halfway through the meeting, the board's director said a new
3: policy would be adopted which calls for quality assurance and accountability in whole language. And he also admitted that it's high time parents' concerns were given more consideration. Further, parents, as the most critical partnership, have a need to be better informed and have
1: mechanisms for input. It would appear that our existing communications do not allow for these necessary forms of communication, both at the school and the system level.
3: In all, 26 people made verbal presentations and 7 submitted written comments. And the board insists it's listening. Bob Smith, CFPL-TV News, London.
2: Well, the board might have been listening, but it never did anything about it. In fact, resistance to doing anything about it was more the order of the day. In Freedom Party's newsletter, the Freedom Flyer of July 1992, there was a story in there with the headline, Whole Language Bulletin Term to get this, hate literature. By the way, you can Google this yourself. Just Google, just say no to whole language, and make sure you spell no, K-N-O-W, and it'll come up right at the top. I quote, Freedom Party was accused of doing damage to schools and communities, which are already struggling with the many challenges of the time, by its distribution of hate literature, the information bulletins warning against whole language. In a letter to the party which went so far as to suggest that truth and objectivity are obviously not the primary pursuits of Freedom Party, R.D. Curso, in conjunction with the staff of St. George's Public School in London, requested, please do not send us further hate literature until you check out the realities. Well, despite the tone of that letter directed against Freedom Party, believe it or not, an invitation was extended to party executive, to visit St. George's School and observe in classrooms, as so many of our parents and volunteers do, quote unquote. Unfortunately, when Robert Vaughn called Corso to accept his invitation, it was verbally declined, purportedly on the grounds that he did, quote, not want the visit to be used for political gain, end quote. And unlike the original invitation, he refused to acknowledge his withdrawn invitation in writing, nor did he wish to discuss the issue of whole language at any length. In an effort to highlight the consistent evasive tactics used by whole language supporters, Robert Nye and the party issued a media release to the London area, charging that, quote, This evasion is yet another example of how our tax-funded public school system does not want the whole language issue to be addressed. End quote. Now you know at the time, way back in 1992, the political significance of having a piece of literature written about a teaching method of reading of all things, being labeled hate literature, was completely lost on us. It was just a bizarre and isolated aberration. But consider that accusation in light of everything that the left does today, what we see them doing all the time. We now know it's the mainstay of how the left deals with almost any issue. And worse is a direct result of the fact that those on the left are incapable of arguing any point on anything. Ironically, due to the very whole language philosophy that they teach and that we are addressing. Here again is Leonard peacock from his 1984 presentation on look-say.
0: Let's look at the method of teaching reading used by most American schools. <clears throat> the look-say method as against phonics. The method of phonics, the old-fashioned approach, first teaches a child the sound of individual letters. Then it teaches him to read words by combining these sounds. Each letter thus represents an abstraction subsuming countless instances. Once a child knows that P sounds p, for instance, that becomes a principle. He grasps that every P he meets sounds the same way. And when he has learned a few dozen such abstractions, he has acquired all the knowledge necessary to decipher any new word he ever encounters. Thus the gigantic multiplicity of the English vocabulary is reduced to a handful of symbols, each functioning as an abstraction. This is the conceptual method of learning to read. Modern educators object to it. Phonics, they say, among many such charges, is unreal. I quote from one such mentality, quote, There is little value in pronouncing the letter P in isolation. It is almost impossible to do this. A vowel of some sort almost inevitably follows the pronunciation of any consonant." Unquote. This means when you pronounce the sound of P, p, you have to utter a vowel sound, the uh, so you haven't isolated the pure. Consonant phonics is artificial. You get that? <laughs> Why can't you isolate in your mind? focusing only on the consonant sound, ignoring the accompanying vowel for purposes of analysis, just as we focus on a red table's color but ignore its shape in order to reach the concept red. Why rule out selective attention and analysis, which is the very essence of human cognition? Because these involve an act of abstraction, they occur on the conceptual level, precisely the level that modern educators methodically oppose. Their favored method, look-say, which is overwhelmingly dominant in our schools, dispenses completely with abstractions. In essence, look-say forces a child to learn the sounds of whole words without knowing the sounds of the individual letters or syllables. This makes every word a new concrete to be grasped only by perceptual means, such as trying to remember its distinctive shape on the page or some special picture the teacher has associated with it. This amounts to heaping on the student, a vast multiplicity of concretes and saying, in effect, stare at these and memorize them. You may not be surprised to discover that this method was invented, as far as I can track it down, by an 18th-century German professor who was a follower of Rousseau, the passionate opponent of reason. There is a colossal big lie involved in the look-say propaganda. Its advocates crusade against memory. They decry the phonics method because they say it requires a boring memorization of the sounds of the alphabet. Their solution is to replace such brief, simple memorization with the task of memorizing the sound of every word in the English language. In fact, it is only the grasp of abstractions in any field that can save children from the drudgery of endless memorization of concrete. No one can learn to read by the look-say method. It is too anti-human. Our schools today, therefore, are busy teaching a new skill, guessing. Now let's look at another aspect of English studies, the teaching of grammar. This subject brings out even more clearly the modern educator's attitude toward concepts. Grammar is the study of how to combine words, in other words concepts, into sentences. The basic rules of grammar, such as the role of subject and predicate or the relation of nouns and verbs, are inherent in the nature of concepts and apply to every language. They state the principles necessary to use concepts intelligibly. In this sense, grammar is an indispensable subject and one based entirely on facts. Grammar is a science and not a very difficult one either. But this is not how the subject is approached in our schools today. The leading educators see no relation between concepts and facts. The reason that they present material from subjects such as history without conceptualizing it is precisely that they regard concepts as mental constructs without relation to reality. Concepts they hold are not a device of cognition, but a mere social ritual or convention a ritual unrelated to knowledge or reality to be performed according to arbitrary social decrees. It follows that grammar is purely social, a set of arbitrary rules decreed by society for no objectively defensible reason. I quote from a book on linguistics written by a modern professor for English teachers, quote, Because we know that language is arbitrary in changing a teacher's attitude toward non-standard usage should be one of acceptance. One level of language is not better than another. This is why the term non-standard is preferable to substandard in describing such usage as he don't do it, was you there. (laughs) A person who uses terms such as these will probably be penalized in terms of social and educational advancement in our society, however, and it is for this reason that the teacher helps children work toward and eventually achieve standard usage, perhaps as a second language." Unquote. This is a book for English teachers. In other words, there's no correct or incorrect anymore, not in any aspect of language, there's only the senseless prejudice of society. And I saw the results of this approach in the classroom. I watched an excellent public school teacher trying to explain to her class the possessive forms of nouns. She gave a clear statement of the rules with striking examples and frequent repetition. She was dynamic. She was colorful. She was teaching her heart out to get the point across. But it was futile. This teacher could not be expected to be a philosopher of language, and she could not combat the idea, implicit in the textbook and in all the years of the students' earlier schooling that grammar is purposeless. The students seemed impervious to instruction and incapable of attention, even when the teacher would blow a shrieking police whistle to shock them momentarily into silence. To them, the subject which she did regularly to them, the subject was nothing but senseless rules. The apostrophe goes here, in this case there, and that, etc. Here was a whole science reduced to disintegrated concretes that had to be blindly memorized, just like the ten causes of the American Revolution or the ten shapes of the last look say session. <clears throat> you might wonder how one teaches composition, the methods of expressing one's thoughts clearly and eloquently in writing. Given today's philosophy of grammar and of concepts, I will answer by reading excerpts from a recent manifesto and asking you to identify its author, quote, We affirm the students' right to their own patterns and varieties of language, the dialects of their nurture or whatever dialects in which they find their own identity and style. The claim that any one dialect is unacceptable amounts to an attempt of one social group to exert its dominance over another." If so, who needs English teachers? Now, who said this? Was it some ignorant, hot headed teenagers drunk on the notion of student power? No. It was an official declaration of the National Council of Teachers of English. If you want a hint as to the philosophy behind this approach, I will mention in passing that the editor of College English, which is one of the major journals of the profession, objects to, quote, an industrial society that will continue to want from us composition, verbal manners, discipline in problem solving, and docile rationality, unquote. You see how explicit this is. The climax of his enemies list is rationality.
2: You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. That's a remarkable observation made by Leonard Peikoff way back in 1984. We no longer have to guess at what the consequences of all this anti-rationality might be. We see it daily on the campuses of our universities and in the utterly irrational statements being made by the political left, whether the Democrats in the U.S. or the liberals in Canada. Consider the fact that the educators of 1984 saw grammar as a set of senseless rules and insisted that children could use whatever dialect they wanted so as to claim their own individual identity and style. This reveals the roots of both identity politics and of issues like gender fluidity, to say nothing of an objection to industrial society itself. These are philosophical consistencies that simply cannot be ignored. It's impossible to understate their significance. Remember that language is far more than just a means of communication. It is primarily a means of thinking and of conceptualization and abstraction, about which we'll hear more from Dr. Peekoff in a few minutes. And given the choice between the term look, say, and whole language, I prefer the latter, whole language. Look-say is a better term to describe the narrow teaching technique as contrasted to its opposite, phonics. But whole language encompasses a much larger and broader concept, the philosophy behind teaching literacy skills using illiterate methods. It has a purpose behind it, and it is not arbitrary, nor is it an attempt to actually help those instructed with a look-say method to acquire reading and comprehension skills, Back in the early 90s, when we were campaigning on this issue, we discovered that a clear, consistent definition of whole language was very difficult to come by, since many have a different definition and understanding of what is meant by that term, some defining whole language strictly as the teaching technique differentiated from phonics, namely look-say, and others referring to a broader concept, the whole language philosophy. But the difficulty and confusion didn't just end there. Over the years, variants of the whole language philosophy have been referred to as universal instruction, visual method, look-say, whole word, word method, sight reading, top-down, whole to part, top to bottom, real books, Aldine method, Scott Forsman method, whole language, psycholinguistics, and the alternative approach, among others. The confusion created by constantly changing the terms that all refer to the same philosophy has been the main tactic by which whole language has survived in the public school system. Over the years, instead of abandoning one of the mentioned teaching techniques whenever it was discovered to be ineffectual, educators using the technique only changed its name to create the illusion that the old technique had been abandoned or improved upon. Whole language is simply one of the many terms given to an education philosophy that is continuing to produce poor results, most visibly in the teaching of literacy skills. Whichever term used to disguise a primary cause of its poor performance and unjustifiably high education taxes, the only identifiable philosophy motivating the whole language approach is the philosophy of egalitarianism. You'll see this expressed in terms like success for every student, which explains the education monopolies evasions relating to the issues of objective educational standards, testing, objective performance, and results measurements. The whole language issue is fundamental to every citizen and taxpayer's understanding of what's wrong with our schools today, from ever-increasing education taxes to ever-decreasing results that taxpayers get for their money. So here's a brief six-point comparison of whole language, or look-say if you prefer, as compared to phonics, and when you hear it, you will better understand why any teacher's monopoly or teacher's union prefers the former to the latter. Under whole language, you're dealing with an authoritarian conditioning process based on unnecessary memorization and guesswork. For example, the letters C, A, and T mean cat because the teacher says so. Whereas under phonics, you're dealing with an independent learning process which does not rely on the authority of teachers or educators or experts. For example, the letters C, A, and T mean cat because that is the sound those letters represent phonetically. Number two, under whole language, children are taught to recognize, not read, words first, then to copy, not write them. They never learn to spell properly. Under phonics, children are taught to read, spell, and write all at the same time. Number three, children under whole language are forced to memorize words one at a time, and the program has no definite end. Can you see the the interaction of that uh, to the teaching profession? A victim of whole language continually comes across words he or she has not memorized. Whereas under phonics, children generally complete the entire program in six months, after which they can read, write, and spell any number of words, even those with which they are not familiar. Number four, whole language requires individual supervision of students, often leaving the rest of the class unsupervised. This is often used by teachers' unions as an excuse to reduce class sizes, to hire additional teachers, and to raise taxes. Whereas under phonics, there is no requirement of individual supervision, a need for smaller class sizes, or the hiring of additional teachers, making it extremely cost-effective. Number five. Whole language is a failure. Its name has been changed, you know, like we've been talking about, look, say, whole word, word method, top-down, and whole reading, among others, each time the failure becomes obvious. Whereas phonics works. It is not new or difficult, and has always been called phonics. And number six. Whole language has been associated with physical and emotional problems in children, including insomnia, headaches, stomach aches, defiance, and temper outbursts, whereas phonics is a rewarding experience which instills pride, self-respect, and a sense of accomplishment. Very revealingly, in March 1992, when Robert Vaughan and I made separate presentations to the London Board of Education's public budget hearings on this subject, Upon my first mention of the term whole language, Board Chairman Bill Brock immediately interrupted, warning that, quote, if you continue with the philosophical debate, your presentation will cease, end quote. Well, curiously, up to the point of that interruption, the term philosophy was never mentioned, confirming once again that whole language is seen in that light by most educational authorities. Brock again re-emphasized a philosophical perspective when he similarly interrupted Robert Vaughn by attempting to divert Robert's focus away from the whole language issue. He suggested that Vaughn be invited to a meeting where you will be able to espouse your philosophy. Thank you very much, but it's not my philosophy, Vaughn replied, and if you'd let me continue, I'll get on with the budget. (laughs) That was hilarious, I remember that day. So remember that language is far more than just a means of communication it is primarily a means of thinking and of conceptualization and abstraction, about which we'll hear more from Dr. Peakoff.
0: Man's knowledge begins on the perceptual level with the use of the five senses, seeing, hearing, and so on. This much we share with the animals. But what makes us human is what our mind does with our sense experiences. What makes us human is the conceptual level on which we exercise our capacity to abstract, to grasp common denominators, to classify, to organize our perceptual field. The conceptual level is based on the perceptual, but there are profound differences between the two. In other words, between perceiving and thinking. Here are some of the differences. I'm not giving an exhaustive list, just enough to indicate the contrast. The perceptual level is concerned only with concretes. For example, a man goes for a casual stroll on the beach. Let's make it a drunken stroll so as to numb the higher faculties and isolate the animal element. He goes for this stroll and he sees a number of concrete entities. Those birds chattering over there, this wave crashing up, that boulder rolling down, etc. He observes, moves on, sees a bit more, forgets the earlier, etc. On the conceptual level, however, we function very differently. We integrate concretes by means of abstractions and thereby immensely expand the amount of material we can deal with. The animal, or drunk, merely looks at a few birds, then forgets them. A functioning man can retain an unlimited number by integrating them all into the concept bird and can then proceed deliberately to study the nature of birds, their anatomy, habits, and so on. The drunk on his walk is aware of a vast multiplicity of things, waves, rocks, you name it. He lurches past a chaos made of countless entities with no ability to make connections among them. On the conceptual level, however, we do not accept such chaos. We turn a multiplicity into a unity by finding the common denominators that run through all the seemingly disconnected concretes, and we thereby make them intelligible. For instance, we discover the law of gravity and see that by a single principle we can understand the falling boulder and the rising tide and many other phenomena. On the perceptual level, no special order is necessary. The drunk can totter from bird to rock to tree in any order he wishes and still see them all but we cannot do that conceptually. On the conceptual level, a definite progression is required. Since we build knowledge on knowledge, we need to know the necessary background material or context at each stage. For example, you can not start calculus before you know arithmetic or argue about tariff protection before you know the nature of government. Finally, for this brief sketch, on the perceptual level, there is no need of logic, argument, proof. A man sees what he sees, and that's it. But on the conceptual level, we do need proof. We need a method of validating our ideas. We need a guide to let us know what conclusions follow from what data. And that guide is logic. So to sum up this brief contrast, perception as such, the sheer animal capacity, is merely staring at concretes, at a multiplicity of them, in no order, with no context, no proof, no understanding. And all you can know by this means is whatever you are staring at, so long as you are staring. Conception, however, which is the human faculty. The level of thought involves the formation of abstractions that reduce the multiplicity to an intelligible unity. And this is a process that requires a definite order, a specific context at each stage, and the regular methodical use of logic. Now come back to education. An education that trains a child's mind accordingly is one that teaches him to make connections to generalize, to see the wider issues and principles involved in any topic. It would achieve this feat by presenting the material to him in a calculated, conceptually proper order, with the necessary context and with the proof that validates each stage. This would be an education that teaches a child to think. The complete opposite of this The most perverse aberration imaginable would be to take conceptual-level material and present it to the students by the method of perception. This would mean, in essence, taking the students through history, literature, science, etc., on the exact model of that casual, unthinking, drunken walk on the beach. The effect would be to exile the student to a no-man's land of cognition, which is neither perception nor conception. What it is, in fact, is destruction, the destruction of the minds of the students and of their motivation to learn. And this is literally what our schools are doing today. Ladies and gentlemen, our schools are defaulting in every subject and on a fundamental level, and they are doing it methodically as a matter of philosophic principle. The anti-conceptual epistemology that grips them comes from John Dewey and from all his fellow irrationalists and fellow skeptics who dominate 20th century American culture, such as linguistic analysts, psychoanalysts, neo-existentialists, etc. And behind all of these, as I argued from this podium last year, stands a century of German philosophy inaugurated by the greatest villain of all, Immanuel Kant. Epistemological corruption is not the only cause of today's educational plight. There are many other contributing factors, such as the teachers' unions and the senseless requirements of the teachers' colleges and the government bureaucracies, local and federal. But epistemology is the basic cause, without reference to which none of the others can be intelligently analyzed or remedied.
2: Doesn't all of this now, in retrospect, make it clear why we see such a high level of irrationality coming from the left? How often have we pointed out that to the left, facts don't matter? The problem's actually much deeper than that, isn't it? Not only do facts not matter, but logic, argument, and proof do not matter. And why? Because they cannot matter to a perceptual mind incapable of abstraction or conception. It's that deeply ingrained in them. They're not capable of it. Picoff's conclusion that our schools are defaulting on every subject and on a fundamental level goes a long way to explaining the incredible scientific ignorance about subjects like, for example, climate change, or issues like gender identities, the appeal of socialism, which is the ultimate aim of all this, and a whole host of knowledge dysfunctions that are a cause of so much of the increasing inability of so many younger people to function in a society that must survive by production. In fact, production and industry itself are regarded as evils by the philosophic left. No wonder the left is a manifestation of a death cult. They're already mentally dead. (laughs) The rest is just a matter of process. And here's an interesting observation made in Freedom Party's January 1993 publication, Consent No. 18, by Dr. Nick Whitehead, then the clinical director and founder of the Oxford Learning Systems and the Oxford Learning Center Schools. You can download this, by the way, from Freedom Party of Ontario's site, just by searching for consent, number 18. Quote, Can you imagine having to memorize by sight every single word in the English language? Well, that's what we condemn kids to when we teach them whole words and not letters. And this causes another problem, the problem of thinking. If we begin by the whole word method, we are encouraging a number of practices. We encourage and reward memorization, and we encourage estimation. If you don't know the word, guess. In fact, by allowing students to think that meanings are interchangeable, that if you don't know what it really means, guessing is okay. We are pretending that words don't have specific meanings. But they do. Every word stands for one and only one specific concept. It is not true that any old meaning will do. It is not true and it is not fair to the student. It says that accuracy is not important, but it is, and that fuzzy or sort of thinking is all right, but it isn't. So we encourage kids to memorize and match, tell them that accuracy is not important, forgive and allow fuzzy thinking and pretend that creative, i.e. inventive spelling is fine. Then what happens? High school, university, college, and life happens. Students who prefer matching usually end up thinking associatively, not conceptually. And isn't that the very phenomenon we identified even when we were talking about how people were perceiving the recent Don Jerry controversy? And how often does that observation come up on our show? But he continues, They can't problem solve, they don't take academic risks, they need structured programs and lots of help and guidance, all of which impede the development of real self-esteem. They don't get it. They don't make connections or see relationships. They are disorganized, not motivated, sometimes confused, angry or defensive. They are not achieving their potential. They haven't learned how to think critically. Ask any high school English or math teacher. Go to university and inquire of the English philosophy, business or psychology departments. Speak to business leaders about the literacy of many recent graduates and you will see that we already have this problem. It's not going away, it's going to get worse. Well, there are some prophetic words indeed. And remember, that was written in 1992. But the problem was already well underway long before that even, and even long before Leonard Peikoff's 1984 presentation that we've been listening to. In her 1943 book, The God of the Machine, Writer Isabel Patterson had already identified the whole language problem but referred to it as progressive education in chapter 21 of her book entitled Our Japanized Education System. Quote, Yet it is advocated as a quote-unquote modern method of teaching a child to read that it shall learn by visual memorizing of words without learning the alphabet. Instead, the little ones were grouped around the schoolmaster who had a picture in his hand. They looked at the pictures of the animals and down at the words. Dog, cat, cow. Until soon they knew which word went with which animal. This is to teach pictograph reading. As far as possible, the advantage of the phonetic alphabet is nullified, including the systemization of knowledge by references under an index. And Isn't that a fascinating observation? Because how do you organize knowledge by using pictures? How do you you alphabetize important concepts? And I'll give the final word to Ayn Rand herself, who argued that, quote, the only purpose of education is to teach a student how to live his life by developing his mind and equipping him to deal with reality. The training he needs is theoretical, that is, conceptual. He has to be taught to think, to understand, to integrate, to prove. He has to be taught the essentials of the knowledge discovered in the past, and he has to be equipped to acquire further knowledge by his own effort. The Academia Jet Set Coalition is attempting to tame the American character by the deliberate breeding of helplessness and resignation in those incubators of lethargy known as progressive schools, which are dedicated to the task of crippling a child's mind by arresting his cognitive development." Quote. So as you can see, the problem of growing illiteracy and growing irrationality in Western culture is no recent development. It's been going on for a century at least, if not longer, and the process is not slowing down today. And still, our teachers' unions and the education establishments of our 21st century society continue to insist that taxpayers and parents be forced to pay for and subsidize schools that no longer teach our kids how to think, but what to think, particularly the ideas of collectivism, socialism, and progressivism. Whole language is just one of the many names given to this evil trend in educational philosophy. Which brings us full circle. No doubt on many future shows, we'll find ourselves again commenting on various social and political issues confronting us today, in which our conversation will again inevitably end up at some version of it all boils down to the education system and what's being taught in the schools. And if you want to test that theory, all I can suggest is that you join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything
1: will be alright. I've had a really busy morning. I've devised a system to totally revolutionise music. Get out of town. Yeah, I've decimalised it. <laughs> Instead of the octave, it's a decorative. And I've invented two new notes, H and J. Hang on a minute, you can't just invent new notes. Well, I have. Now it goes Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Wo, Bo, Ti, Do Do, Ti, Bo, Wo, La, So, Fa, Mi, Re, Do What are you driveling about? Whole rock. It'll be a whole new sound. All the instruments will be extra big to incorporate my two new notes. Triangles will have four sides. Piano keyboards, the length of zebra crossings. Of course, women will have to be banned from playing the cello. (laughs)
2: I'm <laughs> sorry.